0: It's 1864, in a tavern on the outskirts of Washington, D.C. The Civil War is in its third year. Roland Macy Jr., barely 17, sits in a dark corner of a bar. He hasn't bathed for weeks. He peers up from under the brim of his tweed cap pulled low on his forehead and notices two men in dark suits talking to the barkeep. They don't look like they're there to drink. One of them scans the room as the other talks. His gaze passes quickly over Roland, but then it swings back. Before Roland can look away, their eyes meet. They're on to him. Roland leaps up out of his seat, knocking over his beer and bolts for the door. The men rush for him. Roland's frantic. He shoves people out of his way on the crowded street and runs toward an alley. As he glances back to see if the men are gaining on him, he collides with a group of revelers spilling out from another watering hole. An irritated patron shouts after him. Hey, watch it! What the... You little louse! Roland keeps running, but the two men in dark suits are closing in. One of them yells out, Grab him! He's a deserter! A wanted man! A couple of guys tackle Roland. A fist catches him square on the nose. As he tumbles to the ground, his mouth fills with a metallic taste of blood. It pours onto his shirt. His pursuers push aside the crowd and roughly yank him to his feet. That's it, boys. Nice work. We'll take it from here. Thanks. The two men are detectives. They're on assignment to find an AWOL soldier, newly enlisted with the Union Army's 106th New York Volunteers. They'll deliver him for trial and sentencing. When Roland enlisted, military duty seemed like a better alternative than working the loading docks of his father's department store. But Army life proved even worse than Macy's. Roland didn't even last... 10 days and now he's behind bars in Georgetown's Forest Hall prison in 1864 the punishment for desertion is flogging, branding or death the future looks bleak for R.H. Macy's heir and in retail reputation is all even if Roland survives this scandal Macy's may not From Wondery, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In the last episode, R.H. Macy Sr. struggled mightily to make something of himself. After four years of the rugged whaling life, he tried his hand at business. After failing at that, he headed west to make a killing as a supplier in a gold rush mining town. And when that ended in disaster, he headed home to Massachusetts, where he established a dry goods store. That finally turned a modest profit. By 1863, R.H. Macy Sr. has moved his Massachusetts Dry Goods Emporium to the heart of commerce, Manhattan, and it's booming. He hopes to groom his son to follow in his footsteps. But Macy Jr. runs off to join the war and almost immediately deserts his post, humiliating the family. But there's more heartache to come. This is Episode 2, Fathers, Sons, and Civil War. R.H. Macy has learned a few things since his string of business failures. He's chosen a location on the edge of what's known as Ladies Mile, Manhattan's most fashionable shopping district. He spends 3% of his sales on advertising. That's three times as much as his competitors. And his flair for copywriting draws in shoppers. His ads are far chattier than any of his competitors in the 19th century papers. Ladies and gentlemen who live downtown can very quickly find our store by taking the 6th Avenue Cars, corner of Broadway and Vesey Street. Ladies and gents, this will cost you five cents. Our stock is brand new and bought cheap. Customers fall for the ads, but R.H. Macy is cultivating another secret weapon. It's December, 1863, a blustery winter day in Manhattan. Christmas shoppers loaded down with packages rush up and down 14th Street. But 23-year-old Margaret Getchell is not brimming with holiday cheer. She's crouching in a crowded storeroom of R.H. Macy's dry goods. Pretty and slender, she has a small upturned nose and glossy brown hair piled high on her head. Margaret grabs a kitten by the neck and holds it down with one hand. With the other, she struggles to pull a doll's white cotton and lace nightdress over the squirming creature's head. Another cat, already clad in his matching nightie, sits calmly next to her, grooming its paw. Damn it all, Tittlewink, stop moving! Margaret has a grand plan for a Christmas promotion. She goes through this ordeal multiple times a day for two weeks with the kittens, plying them with milk and sardines. All she wants is for them to wear matching nightgowns and sleep for an hour or so in twin cribs. But Tittlewink isn't having it today. He bites Margaret's wrist. Ow! Quit it! That hurts! Just then, the door opens and R.H. Macy pops his head in. He's now in his 40s with a full salt-and-pepper beard, ruddy cheeks, and a barrel chest. Two years ago, he hired Margaret to be his cashier. She's a distant cousin from Nantucket and a former schoolteacher, but when he saw her aptitude for sales, he promoted her to bookkeeper. She's been slowly transforming the store with her innovative ideas. Everything all right in here? The crowd's getting impatient. When do you think you'll have this situation under control? Oh, Mr. Macy, it seemed like such a good idea, but... Margaret stops herself. She is famous for her persistence. No Nantucket woman ever left home alone like she did at 16 to find a job as a schoolteacher in Virginia, a state hundreds of miles away. No Nantucket woman ever moved to New York City and supported herself like she did. And that was after losing an eye in an accident, which ended her teaching career, but led her to a new career as one of the first women executives in retail. She has a personal Macy's motto. It's... Be everywhere, do everything, and never forget to astonish the customer. A kitten is not going to get in her way now. Mr. Macy, everything will be just fine. Excuse my impertinence, but I know you have a bottle of whiskey in your desk. Could I perhaps borrow it? R.H. is puzzled by the request, but then grins. You've given me a better idea. Just a sec, I'll be right back. He disappears and returns shortly with a bottle of eggnog. It's one of his favorite seasonal treats. Will this do? Margaret chuckles and nudges eyedroppers dripping with eggnog into the kittens' mouths. Perfectly. She brings the kittens to the toy department, places them in the cribs, and then cues a music teacher she's hired to start playing a lullaby on a cello. The cat lullaby in Wonderland goes off without a hitch. Margaret has a photographer shoot the adorable scene. The kitty photos become bestsellers. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, thousands of women, children, and an unprecedented number of men, including Macy's good friend P.T. Barnum himself, traips through R.H. Macy's Toyland. They ooh and ah at the adorable cats curled up in their lace finery, dreaming away the afternoons, drunk as a pair of baby skunks. Macy's annual sales that year? Soar to over $100,000. But the following year, with his son languishing in prison, awaiting his fate, R.H. Macy can barely focus on business. He's furious at Roland. It was bad enough that he ran away in the first place, but he's enraged that his son deserted his regiment. A son of his? A coward? Lying in bed at night, unable to sleep, Macy thinks, what a blight this is on the family name the name that Macy has poured the last eight years of his life building into a New York institution. But then he remembers his own foolishness when he was young. How miserable he was that first year on the whaling ship, seasick and mocked by his crewmates. If he had a chance in those first two weeks to run away, well, you know, he might well have taken it. Perhaps he should have shared his hardships with Roland instead of always playing up his time at sea as the best years of his life. He and Roland were never close. The last time they spoke, R.H. said things he regrets. And now, he might lose him. R.H. plans a trip to Washington to see if there are any strings he can pull to get his boy out of this mess. But then, a letter arrives from an unexpected savior. Dear Mr. R.H. Macy, I am writing to tell you that your son, Roland Macy Jr., has been tried and convicted of desertion. He was sentenced to forfeit his pay and has been remanded into my care in the 106th Regiment. As Roland's commanding officer, I can tell you he has always conducted himself with much propriety and exhibited such soldier-like qualities in battle and on the campaign that I have interceded on his behalf and petitioned the court to clear his record. They have agreed. I will look out for your son to ensure his conduct is worthy of the court's clemency. In your service, Captain Abel T. LaForge. R.H. writes LaForge to thank him for his son's release, and the two men strike up a friendship. They continue exchanging letters through the last year of the war, and when peace is declared in 1865, LaForge heads to New York in search of work. He ends up finding not just a job but a career, and a wife, Margaret Getchall, now the store's superintendent. This cements LaForge's place in Macy's management and R.H.'s family. But Roland Macy Jr.'s homecoming will not turn out nearly as well. Around the same time that R.H. Macy welcomes LaForge into the firm, he brings another man into the company, whose children will determine the department store's future well into the next century. By the time he enters Macy's life, his character has already been gravely tested by war and violence. It's late on Easter Sunday, April 16, 1865, in Columbus, Georgia. The last true battle of the Civil War is coming to a close. Union troops capture the Franklin Street Bridge from a ragtag band of Confederate reserves and locals armed with everything from hunting rifles to pitchforks. Federal soldiers march into town. For the rest of the night, they ransack the Georgia town. They arrest resistors, confiscate goods, and destroy whatever they can't carry. They burn down the town mill and the cotton warehouses. As the rioting continues throughout the night, Lazarus Strauss and his wife, Sarah, huddle with their teenage sons on the sofa in their parlor. They're trying not to listen to the terrifying sounds of chaos outside, but it's impossible. Lazarus is 56 years old and balding. The warmth in his eyes soften a stern, furrowed brow. He's worried Union soldiers or the drunken town rabble will loot the family's dry goods store. As a resident of the South and a merchant, he's on the Confederate side, But he doesn't support slavery. He's an immigrant, a Jew, who's seen more than his share of anti-Semitism and bigotry. He survived the German Revolution of 1848, and now he's about to lose his livelihood yet again to war. He needs to act. Sarah, I can't sit here another moment. I've got to go and defend the store. He tries to get to his feet, but his wife pulls him closer. No, Lazarus, what will happen to us if the soldiers come in the house? We're Confederate sympathizers. We're the enemy, you know. Lazarus gently extricates himself from his wife's arms. Boys, take care of your mother. I'll be back. He puts on his coat and hat and walks out the door. Sarah and her sons wait, praying he'll come back safely before the soldiers arrive at their door, bent on revenge. When Lazarus does visit the store, his heart sinks. It has been thoroughly trashed. He will have to start over yet again. But this time, he and his sons create a new business, a business so successful that it captures R.H. Macy's attention in New York. When they meet, they will form a partnership that will be tested by turbulent times ahead. It's a blustery March day in 1866 in Manhattan. In the wholesaling firm Bliss and Company, merchant Lazarus Strauss walks into George Bliss's office. Bliss's eyes open wide in shock. Strauss hasn't been north since his last buying trip, before the war broke out. That was six years ago. Lazarus Strauss, I thought you were dead. Before Bliss can get to his feet to give a proper welcome, Strauss reaches out his hand. He's holding a bank draft. Hello, George. I have the money I owe you for my last order. Eight hundred dollars. Now we're good, I think. Bliss is too astonished to speak. He has buyers from dozens of stores based in the South, but not a single trader from the Confederate territory has ever paid off their debts to him, or as far as he knows, any other business in the city. Bliss and all the other northern suppliers had written off the southern merchants' debts as war losses. Until now. And Lazarus Strauss doesn't stop there. He lost his store and nearly his life to the war, but he invested wisely in cotton and made a small fortune. He uses his profits to pay off more than $20,000 in debt. Paying off the debt is worth many times that amount in goodwill and, more importantly, The credit it buys him and his sons. His sons are now grown and partners with him in a new venture, a china and fine glassware firm. They sublease a large basement space from one of the most prosperous dry goods merchants in Manhattan, R. H. Macy. For now, the Strausses are in the basement. But they have much grander ambitions. The Strausses and Macy's struggle to survive the pain and chaos of the war. But Adam Gimble in Vincennes, Indiana, well, his dry goods business and his family are growing well, far from the battlefields. By the end of the war, Adam is a patriarch with eleven children. Five of his seven sons now run his dry goods store. He and his wife Friedelin move from Vincennes to Philadelphia to be closer to her family. Now that his wife is happily resettled in her hometown. And Adam has his sons as partners. He's ready to hear their plans for the next generation of Gimble's Palace of Trade. It's a rare mild day in early March 1877, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Adam and Jacob Gimble have brought their father here from Philadelphia for a reason, though he doesn't yet know it. They survey the scene on Grand Avenue, the busiest intersection on the busiest street in town. It's the center of Milwaukee's industrial zone, a dense jumble of breweries, meatpacking companies, flour mills, and tanneries. Beer wagons loaded with 12 huge barrels, six to a side, rumble through the streets as they make deliveries. The gimbals can see the topsails of a tall ship tied up at the wharf down the block. Jacob, 27 years old and experienced in advising his father on business matters, has prepared a pitch. Papa, we've been doing the research, As Lewis and I were telling you the other night, Milwaukee is full of mills that can process grain for shipment throughout the country. And a train line runs through here. We should go where the trains go and open new stores wherever there's an important terminus. And right here in Milwaukee would be a good place to start. Just look at all this foot traffic. Women in hoop skirts, Eastern European immigrant laborers, men with derbies, they're all rushing by on the wide wooden planks that serve as sidewalks. But Adam has some concerns. Are there a lot of Germans here? German Jews? I want you boys to raise your families among good people. Our people. Even though Adam has ceded much of the control of the business over to his sons, he's still the spiritual center of the family. Until his death, he'll begin every board meeting of every store they open with a quotation from the scriptures. He always places a single broken twig along with a bound bundle of twigs in the middle of the director's table to remind board members of the importance of unity towards a common goal, especially when tempers flare. Jacob reassures his dad. Yes, Papa, there are loads of German Jews and even good German Wurst. Just look at all the sausages they have in this coffeehouse here on the corner. No matter what, we have to open near this place. It's always packed. In 1877, the Gimbel brothers are solidifying their hold on the Midwest and beginning to plot their expansion in the East. But R. H. Macy's business is facing a crisis. Roland Macy Jr. has dropped out of sight, perhaps lost to drink or debts. R. H. doesn't know, so he writes a will that prepares the way for Margaret Getchall and Abiel Laforge to take over store operations. R.H. has come to think of Margaret like a second daughter, and LaForge like the son he never had. But on a buying trip to Paris, R.H. suddenly dies. He's only 54. One year later, a Boston coroner identifies Roland Jr.'s body in a hotel room. He drank himself to death. But that's not the only tragedy to befall the growing retail empire. Within two years, LaForge will die of tuberculosis, and his broken-hearted widow, Margaret, now a single mother of three, will sell out her shares to yet another distant Macy relative. A year later, that cousin is also in his grave. In the space of four years, two generations of Macy's leadership vanish. Macy's could have ended here if it weren't for that family business R.H. Macy had taken a risk on just after the war. L. Strauss & Sons invested in their own china and glassware factories. Thirteen years after first subleasing a small space in Macy's basement, they have become the most successful department at Macy's. And now they have enough capital to buy the whole store. In the next episode, the Strausses lead Macy's into the next century, where they'll usher in a golden age of the department store. The Strausses will toast their success on a fabulous new ship, the Titanic. And the Gimbel brothers will prepare a move to Manhattan to challenge Macy's head on. From Wondery, this is Business Wars. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode and we invite you to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a link on the episode notes. If you tap or swipe over the cover art, you'll also see some offers from our sponsors. Please support our show by supporting them. If you like what you've heard, it would be great if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe while you're at it. There's another way you can support us. That's by going over to wondery.com survey and answering a couple of questions. And while you're there, don't forget to tell us what business war stories you'd like to hear. We should say something about the conversations in this episode. We can't know exactly what was said, but this dialogue is based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. Barbara Bogave wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. Sound designed by Kyle Randall for Bay Area Sound. Our executive producers are Jenny Lauer Beckman and Marshall Louie, Created by Hernan Lopez for wondering.